You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. So, Ryan, you're going to introduce us this week to Hamiltonian Monte Carlo, which I think has nothing to do with Lin-Manuel Miranda going to Monaco and staging his hit musical, or am I wrong? No, it's a, it's unfortunately just a technique for markup chain Monte Carlo, but it happens to be uh, hopefully efficient in high-dimensional problems. So Hamiltonian Monte Carlo is tackling this uh, this very challenging situation in um, in Markov chain Monte Carlo. So to remind you, Markov chain Monte Carlo or MCMC is about the problem of trying to compute expectations under possibly um, very complicated distributions for which you don't have the normalizing constant. So uh, typically, the way we do that is you make some kind of sequence of small decisions. Um, jump from sort of one state of the Markov chain to the next, and you try to construct that Markov chain in such a way that as you run it forward, the marginal state of the chain, that is if you kind of look at where you've landed, that converges to the distribution that you care about. And so then you can draw samples from it and um, and compute expectations and different kinds of things um, under that, uh, you know, using those samples. And that lets you do different kinds of computation that you might want to do for uh, for, say, Bayesian machine learning. The thing that's hard about MCMC is that uh, often the kinds of techniques that you use look a lot like random walks. And random walks tend to just sort of diffuse quite slowly around on the, uh, in this distribution. And so you really depend to get good answers from MCMC on your random walk eventually wandering to kind of every place, or at least having a chance to wander to every place in the distribution and having forgotten its initial starting point. Um, but random walks being slow and then high dimensions kind of it being very hard, the uh, this may take a very long time. And the reason it's hard in very high dimensions is because there's some unintuitive behavior that happens on high dimensional probability distributions, which is that in higher and higher dimensions, typically what we call a typical sample from a distribution becomes concentrated on a relatively thin shell. This is a little bit it's a little bit weird and counterintuitive because in low dimensions, if you think about something like, think about a Gaussian distribution in low dimensions, it's just a bell curve, right? It's the bell curve that we've all seen for test scores and everything sort of in the world. And, and it looks like this big diffuse thing um, that we have a pretty good intuition for. And then you can imagine generalizing that to two dimensions where it has you know this kind of cloud of points that's ellip roughly elliptical. And, um, and then in higher dimensions, you can imagine that this kind of say this kind of spherical object, uh, this kind of spherical cloud, um, sort of continues to be a spherical cloud. But what you notice is that in higher and higher dimensions, the sort of density of points in this cloud, the sort of the 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 place where all of the sort of probability mass is, starts to become concentrated on a very thin shell, and there's a variety of ways you can convince yourself of this. Um, my favorite way is to think about the following, which is that if I had a spherical Gaussian distribution, then uh, essentially what I'm going to be doing, if, and if I look at the distance from the origin that I'm going to land, that I can look at the squared distance from the origin, so Euclidean distance, squared Euclidean distance, as being a sum of each of the square of each coordinate. And if I have a whole bunch of dimensions, then I'm going to be taking, I'm going to be summing the squares of individual dimensions for a possibly very large number. And if all of those have some sort of known mean and known variance, um, then central limit theorem sort of tells me that that's going to start to concentrate very quickly. 
And so what that means is that, that distance, no matter where, sort of when I draw from the uh, when I draw from this high dimensional distribution, then uh, I'm going to wind up um, some very like sort of specific distance from the origin. For almost every sample I draw. Now I may wind up in different places on this shell, but I'm going to wind up essentially very, very close to some characteristic distance from the origin. So I, I will wind up on this on this shell with, with or very near the shell with high probability. And that doesn't sound like, I mean, so that's counterintuitive, but it doesn't necessarily sound like a disaster um, until you start to think about what it would mean to try to take a random walk in this kind of world where we're doing acceptances and rejections. So imagine that I'm sitting on the shell and, um, and I'm going to use a, an MCMC type technique and I'm going to make a proposal and a little sort of fuzzy ball around where I am and then try to jump to that point and look and see whether I'm uh, in a place of, of sort of higher density than I am now, roughly speaking, and sort of decide whether or not I'm going to move to that point. Now, what's going to happen is if I'm on that shell, almost every place I propose is going to cause me to jump off of the shell, and I'll reject it. And so it becomes very hard to move very fast or very far once we get into higher dimensions, because almost everything I do is going to be causing me to jump off, jump off the shell. So efficient methods for sampling from a high dimensional distribution are necessarily going to need to sort of know about that shell in some way and try to constrain themselves if possible to being on the shell. And that's exactly what Hamiltonian Monte Carlo tries to do. So Hamiltonian Monte Carlo is an auxiliary variable method. What that means is that it takes all of the, the sort of the, um, the variables that you care about that you're trying to sample from, and then it adds a bunch of new variables. And now you're going to sample from all of this stuff together, but hopefully with the property that if you're sort of careful with the math, that if you look at just the marginal distribution over the original stuff, then that's kept intact. So you add more things in such a way that it makes the problem easier somehow, um, but in a way that doesn't change the answers that you get. The kind of stuff that Hamiltonian Monte Carlo does is it adds what you can think of as pseudo-momenta. That sounds really weird, but... What it literally means is that we're going to imagine this is this high dimensional problem that we care about is actually a surface. And that the state of our Markov chain is now a like a, a frictionless ball. And we're going to try to create the situation where we're rolling the ball around the surface. And so then it will hopefully sort of stay, make sort of big long trajectories that are on the um uh, that are sort of stuck on this high probability shell. Now, the state space, though, of this ball is described not just by its position, but also by its momentum. And so we add momenta to this uh, problem that don't really exist, but the idea is that then once the sort of ball gets rolling in some direction, it can actually continue to keep rolling, and we get away from this random walk behavior while still staying on the shell. That's the idea. And, uh, and we try to construct this in such a way that all of the sort of nice guarantees associated with, Hamil with, uh, associated with MCMC stay intact. And so what we wind up doing is building essentially a sort of virtual Hamiltonian system that has this, uh, that has this state space. And we then are alternating between um, integrating that Hamiltonian system, so simulating the ball rolling around, and then randomizing the amount of kind of energy that the ball has. So you can think of this kind of crazy way of doing Markov chain Monte Carlo where you simulate a ball rolling around and then you give that ball a random kick 
in order to make it really a random sort of, uh, you know, in order for the problem, in order for the um, the algorithm to be ergodic and to give you correct answers. So you give it a random kick and then you simulate the ball rolling around a little more, you give it another random kick and so on. And the idea is that you'd big, take these big long trajectories instead. And in particular, it knows about the sort of geometry of the space. So um, if you think about optimizing a problem, you could imagine taking a kind of a random walk and eventually getting to some good minimum, or you could imagine using gradient information and getting to the minimum much faster. Same kind of idea here, but now with MCMC. Rather than doing just kind of random stuff, we're gonna look at the gradient, and we're gonna to try to take advantage of this additional information that we have about the structure of the problem to make longer and more efficient trajectories. The challenge, you know, there's some challenges, of course, associated with implementing Hamiltonian Monte Carlo. It's a more complicated thing to do than your vanilla Metropolis Hastings type algorithm. You're gonna to need to take gradients, the good news is that we have lots of powerful automatic differentiation software. So um, there's a variety of tools out there um, that, that let you just get these get these gradients kind of automatically once you specify the function. Um, tools like Stan uh, are uh, are very nice for doing this uh, doing this efficiently. And then um, my group also has the Autograd package. Um, the other thing you need to do is when you're performing this simulation, you you can't just do a sort of very simple like forward Euler type integration, you have to do something a little bit more complicated because it needs to be a reversible integration. So when the ball gets to where it's going, it has to be the case that if you sort of reverse the momentum, you would come back to where you started. Um, and that is to say that this whole sort of process needs to satisfy detailed balance. Um, and, the, uh, and then it also needs to be volume preserving. That is, if we have some little sort of patch of the distribution, then the, the sort of volume of that patch needs to be preserved by applying this by applying this um, uh, this process to it, and this is these are sort of properties that, that are sort of technical properties that we need in order for us to get the right answers when we're sampling from from this uh, from this distribution. Fortunately, these are these are both satisfied by a relatively straightforward form of uh, of Euler integration called leapfrog uh, Euler integration, where you just sort of take half steps in the in the momenta. Um, and uh, and then update the state otherwise. So anyway, the point is that um, you don't need to think too hard about that aspect of things because other people have worked it out. There's this really um, there's this really fantastic review paper um, that came out I think in 2010 by Radford Neal that you can find online on Archive and also was in like a CRC Press uh, handbook of Markov Chain Monte Carlo. Fantastic, absolutely fantastic paper, like all of Radford's papers on uh, on on HMC. Um, and then also David Mackay's textbook talks about this as well and has a very nice kind of algorithm box that you can, um, that you can just sort of plug and play. It still requires tuning. The stuff, you know, um, the simplicity of the algorithms kind of sweeps some of the, some of the realities under the um, sort of uh, under the rug, but it's, it's really the, it, it, I think it is kind of the right thing to do in a lot of, in a lot of situations. Michael Betancourt um, has been doing a lot of really fantastic uh, work in this lately. He gives amazing talks about this, by the way. I, some, I think yeah, um, I saw him give a talk at, at JSM uh, last year or the year before about, uh, you know, about Hamiltonian Monte Carlo. And it just, it was just, a, it was a beautiful talk, very clear. And so if you get the chance to, to watch one of the, one of his videos online about this stuff, I highly recommend it. We'll have more about Hamiltonian Monte Carlo on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on talking machines is about unbalanced data. Most of the data I work with is highly unbalanced, like binary labels in ratio 1 to 20. How do you deal with that? This is a question that comes up all the time. It's a very practical thing. 
um, because lots of data are unbalanced, and so we need sort of practical ways to deal with it. I don't think there's sort of the one true way to deal with it, but um, but I can give a couple of tips and a couple of straightforward things to try first. So the number one rule associated with unbalanced data is to uh, make sure that you're thinking hard about how you evaluate the performance of your algorithm. I know that sounds like an obvious thing, but if you have a 20 to one data set um, and you get 95% accuracy on it, you should not be very impressed with yourself. Um, and that's because simply predicting the most common label will give you high accuracies. So you need to be thinking about um, evaluating it with the knowledge that um, making very naive decisions might give um, what appears to be good accuracy. So uh, that is to say, as always, think hard about your evaluations um, and think and compare them to simple uh, random, you know, sort of random predictions and um, um, and sort of constant predictions. So a conventional thing to do is to do something like uh, upweight essentially the uh, the data that you have fewer of. So most algorithms that you're going to be able to that you're going to use, <clears throat> most supervised algorithms that you use would have some way to um, essentially cause a datum to be worth 10 or 20 times more than it would normally. And most of the time, this just corresponds to imagining that you're sort of um, replicating that datum throughout your data set. And, um, and so what you're sort of trying to do is get to a place where you essentially have um, kind of the same weights associated with, with each one of these guys, uh, the same effective number of data for each, for each class. And, um, and then you'd hope that your algorithm is going to be a little bit better, better behaved because it's seeing, uh, it's not focusing so much on the sort of marginal statistics of each, of each label. Um, it's very important after you do that, if you're going to use something like logistic regression or, or whatever it is you're using to go back in and make sure that you recalibrate the labels that you get out, because you will now not make, you will now um, be making predictions from something that thinks the world is 50-50 between these labels when it is not. Um, and so you'll, you'll want to, uh, to make sure that you do some kind of sort of calibration post-training to get back to uh, the, the sort of reality of the situation. There are other things you could imagine too. You could imagine, um, you know, subsampling the, uh, you know, the, the larger class and, uh, and creating ensembles. You know, there's various ways that, that you can handle this. I mean, you know, in some in some models, we'll allow you to just go straight after it with it, uh, um, you know, maybe don't care that much about label imbalance. But a typical kind of thing is to basically try to create some kind of some kind of artificial balancing and then compensate for it after the fact. But as I say, the number one main thing is don't fool yourself when you're evaluating the method um, if, uh, you know, if because simple things like accuracy may be very misleading. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Douglas Eck of Google. He's working on the Magenta project there. When I sat down with him at ICML this year, I asked him, how did he get where he is now? That's a great question. Um, I started off as a failed musician, and I've always tried to work with other failed musicians. Um, <laughs> I did my undergraduate in English Lit. Oh, uh, very and, nice. Uh, I wanted to be a writer. And oh, I wow. actually, you know, creative writing has always been a sort of side passion of mine. 
And I graduated and I realized, and I, I promise you it was actually a surprise, that there really aren't a lot of jobs for creative writing people. My God. I know, shocking. <laughs> but I, I had been hacking code on the side and understanding um, more and more about computation and ended up working as a database programmer. And that's where my musicianship failed as well. Mm. I was playing songs in coffee houses and things like that. And uh, I finally got bored with it and said, again, naively, I'm going to go back to work in music and computing. And I just sort of almost literally drew a Venn diagram and saw there was an intersection of music and computing nice. and, and started working on a PhD in cognitive science. Um, one thing that I always comes out for me is uh, wondering whether one should do a PhD or not. And um, someone said, well, you know, you're going to be six years older in six years. The question is whether you want to ha have a PhD or not. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think it's about the degree, uh, but yeah. I think thinking that way, it actually was one of those things I was ready to hear that at that time in my yeah. life. I was 24. I'm like, well, yeah, life goes on anyway. You might as right. well just kind of dive in and do what you, know, right. do what you want to do. So once I, once I f uh, finished up this PhD, I figured, again, I'd be um, unemployable. <laughs> and um, I mean, it was like a PhD in cognitive science and, and computer science and focusing on the neural dynamics of, of coupled oscillators and how they respond to like really, really arcane, like really caring <laughs> about rhythm perception. And then like this wild thing happened. Um, a, I got, got a great postdoc working on recurrent neural networks and B, the iPod happened. Oh, right. And with the iPod came demand for audio. And yeah. so I, I kind of moved towards more towards audio signal processing and machine learning on large audio data sets. Um, and actually was lucky enough to, to work on a, a very hot uh, recurrent neural network architecture called Long Short-Term Memory, LSTM. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I have these papers out in like 2002 working with LSTM on music generation, which totally failed to solve any interesting problem <laughs> you know, with respect to music, but at least like put me on the map as being like an early pioneer. Awesome. Um, and, uh, and then I moved on to University of Montreal mm -hmm. and... Uh, Joined the faculty there in a group formed by Joshua Bengio, now called the Mila Lab, and was the Lisa Lab, and had the chance to really dive into to deep learning and to collaborate with some really amazing people, both at University of Montreal and the Brahms Group, Brain Music and Sound, and also at McGill with the Kermit Group, the, the Center for, for Music Technology there, and uh, kept going, kept going, and uh, did what many people do that leave academia for, for, for industry. I got tenure. And if you're a competitive sort, if you're sort of a driven person, it can feel like the game is over. Like you've hit that, you kind of hit that level. Like why would I keep right. playing this game? Yeah. And so when I had the chance on sabbatical to join Google, I jumped at it and nice. uh, haven't looked back since. That's fantastic. So tell me about Magenta. Is, the, is that the main thing that you're working on oh, these days? Absolutely. So um, once at Google, I, um, I started working on mostly on music recommendation. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I worked for a long time on play music, um, really since its beginning. And dove into that idea of like how can you how can you start to connect users to the music they love mm -hmm. um and i think the questions become more and more about people and less and less about technology the, mm -hmm. the closer you get to products like that which i really enjoyed and finally um about a year and a half ago even before deep dream deep dream are these um really beautiful images that are generated from from neural networks by 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 initializing them with noise and then doing some learning even before deep dream um, Deep Dream is the, probably these, you know, these beautiful images generated by neural networks. Um, I saw that um, in the field of, of, of machine learning, we're absolutely moving towards caring about generative models again. Mm -hmm. And there's even kind of a reuniting of what we can do with neural networks and what uh, people in, maybe a decade ago were trying to do with, with Bayesian inference, mm -hmm. with, um, with another framework of machine learning. Um, and so I started asking this question, can we actually revisit this question of computational creativity? 
And actually, incidentally, the, the first internal documents I wrote at Google were kind of ranty, like, why aren't we doing this? You know, we need to do music and we need to do art. And why aren't you letting me? And, and I sort of realized at some point there was really no one not letting me. It was just that I was ranting. Like, who's this crazy guy with this sign? No you one's know? holding you back, Doug. Exactly. Go for like, it. really, just like, how about a proposal that's sane and not just you ranting? So, like, I locked all those internal shared documents. No one gets to read them anymore. And I um, really, in a day, I rewrote the, the vision for Magenta, which I think still holds, which is can computers, you know, do creative things? Can they make music and art? And if so, how? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And very, very also possible. If not, why not? Like, what else do we need in the mix? And so, we know, we're talking about using the same kind of technologies that have broken, you know, state-of-the-art records in speech recognition, uh, in, in audio, um, in um, image annotation, in translation. Like, what can we do with these if we start taking their generative capacity and actually trying to connect that to the arts and music? Mm -hmm. And if you follow that that through, I think you're at a, actually a really interesting proposition that is, you know, for, at first glance, it's like, oh, great. All right. You know, let's just rewrite that is let's let a few people just have fun. Right. Right. And it should be fun. Right. But also like, look, I look at my kids. I have two kids, 12 and 17 years old, and like they're using their phones for well over 50 percent media consumption, entertainment. Yeah. Right. Like, why not use machine learning to help automate part of that to sort of fan out into new possibilities with what we can do with personalized media generation and, you know, give people new tools. And um, I found to my surprise once, well, it wasn't so surprising, I guess, once I was able to state this as a valid research direction, mm. there was absolutely no, no, no problem getting support inside of Google. And, um, you know, we were able to get this off the ground in brain. That's and, awesome. And start working on it. What, what are you exploring right now? So right now we're, we're in what I would call fan out mode, mm -hmm. exploration mode. Um, I'll be giving a talk tomorrow that's very speculative, talking about different directions we can go in. We've, we've just launched an, an open source site. Uh, we have a GitHub. Um, it's, under the, uh, it's under the organization of TensorFlow, which is by design. This is a TensorFlow linked project, mm -hmm. um, TensorFlow Magenta. And we're just starting to see the community kick in and, and contribute. And that's been actually really like way more fun and way more in I knew it was going to be interesting. It's taken off much more quickly than I thought. Mm. So we, as part of our launch, we released a recurrent neural network uh, to write music scores. And I don't, I don't think it's breaking the state of the art, but I also think it's carefully prepared and does some nice things, a couple mm -hmm. of clever things. And some people took one of our compositions that we had put up in MP3 format, mm -hmm. and they downloaded it. We don't know these people. This is a guy in Vietnam. <laughs> and he played this really wild Vietnamese instrument on top of it. Whoa. And then someone else jumped in on the recording and played guitar. And like suddenly what was a pretty, a pretty thin melody, right? Like uh. what we liked about it is that the, the melody that was generated by the model did have some chord structure. You uh -huh. could play it as a one, four, five kind of a pop progression. Or mm. you could play it more as like a starting on the minor six, like an A minor thing um, yeah. for the music geeks out there. Um, but they actually did some cool things with it. And That's I realized awesome. like if you, if you can get this material out to other creative people, it, it may be more powerful than you might think at first glance. And and by that I mean, right, we just got a lot of information from them. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. they just like added a bunch of material to this piece. Right. And as long as everybody's happy with us learning from each other, we can take that and learn from them what we got right and what we got wrong and close this learning loop with the world, which is what I think is sort of the hardest problem in, in doing machine learning in the arts and music. 
And and the reason it's hard is that otherwise we don't know what's good. I mean, right. we didn't even know what's good and you know play music. The people doing recommendation in Spotify don't know what's good. They're right. just like, you right. know, They're just like follow the users, right? right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, they yes. like it. I, I'm sorry you liked that song, but I guess you do. <laughs> and and so I guess I feel the same way about computer generated music um, and art. You know, we really aren't going to know if it's good. I mean, we lack we lack a solid you know computational metric for it, aside right, from right. whether people like it or not. And so, closing that loop is crucial. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It also sounds like a a highly effective wedge for um, creative endeavors. It, like it would be an amazing to be able to create leap jumping off points for collaboration and for the creativity. I think that's right. There's I, I've gone back and forth with people about whether whether you want a project like Magenta to be about computers generating art mm. or if you want it to be about tools for artists mm -hmm. and I finally come to the conclusion you know why not both yeah you know, that right. meme, you know it's the shrug, right. shrug shoulders meme like and, and I think there's like there's a shallow answer to that is which is oh we're going to pursue both in parallel but I think the better answer to that is all of art is about personal generation and collaboration yeah. and so even if we let's just say for the for the sake of argument we're so good at this that mm -hmm. we, you know, we create the next JS Bach. Yeah. He, you know, but he's doing something completely new. Or she, let's call it she. She's doing something completely new, right? Yeah. Even then, what's useful about that outside the context? Not much. I'm sorry. What's useful about that outside the context of collaborating with other artists and sharing with the world? Not much. I mean, right. everything gets pulled back into the social context. So to state that more clearly or in a less rambling fashion, we are interested in generative models that can generate great material for their own sake. And mm -hmm. we're thinking about ways to to do that well with planning in the context of what's called reinforcement learning. But at the same time, we realize that to the extent that these models succeed, they're going to be used by other people, including artists, mm -hmm. but not just artists, just people. So you also work with, um, you, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but this was my understanding of it. <coughs> you you help to run a program that also like works with artists to use generative models and to use machine learning as as a tool for them. Is that correct? To create um, new works. That's partially correct. I would say that that's half the goal of Magenta. So mm. that program is Magenta. Okay. The, we, we purposely made Magenta an open source program. I'm sorry, we made Magenta an open source project. And we, we pulled it away from TensorFlow to have its own sandbox, its own mm -hmm. GitHub. Mm -hmm. And the reason for doing that is we actually want to invite coders that would not be submitting code to core TensorFlow, mm -hmm. including artists who want to just try to dabble a little bit. Like, I'm perfectly happy if our models directory in TensorFlow slash Magenta is filled with kind of crazy attempts to do things with machine learning that, how do I put this positively, might not pass the sort of quality test of machine <laughs> learning that you get in, you know, the right. sort of professional world of right. machine learning. Like, there was a, there was a, this isn't part of uh, of Magenta, but there was uh, a, a person who, I mean, we can look this up, we can fill it in later, mm -hmm. but uh, who did a blog posting using a recurrent neural network to generate jazz improvisation. Mm. And he did it as like a hackathon thing, but he trained on one song. Oh. Now, if you know machine learning, you're like, right. wait a minute, I think you probably <laughs> overfit that song because you only had one data point in your training set, you know? Right. Right. But at the same time, it made this really cool. Right. Like, and it, what it did was it, it, it more or less memorized the song. And, and gave it, but did he just give you the song back or did he give <clears> you No, no, lots of variants because even if you try to memorize something with something like a recurrent neural network, the way it works is you're, you're doing, normally you're doing what's called like next step prediction. So mm -hmm. you're doing something really naive in fact. You're saying, okay, here's how composition works. I mean, let's step even one step further. The, the, the assumption that we're making 
the naive assumption that we're making with the um, the sort of simple RNN model that we released and that we have this demo about and that we know is naive is okay. How does music work? Um, give me three notes. Okay. Now I'm I've got a musical score. I've seen three notes of that score. This mm -hmm. is the training process. I'm going to try to predict the fourth note. Yeah. Did I get it wrong? Oops, I got it wrong. Calculate some gradient. Right. Learn a little bit. Now let's go on to note five and six and seven and eight. And so it's always just given the previous notes, predict the next one. Right. Now that sounds pretty reasonable on paper. You show a model a few thousand or a few hundred thousand scores and it starts to learn you know, some structure. Mm -hmm. But then the way that we compose with these or the normal way to compose with these models is to do exactly the same thing. Like give the model some priming sequence you know, dun, 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 something like that. Mm -hmm. That was the priming sequence we used of it singing it over and over in talks, so I <laughs> got it down. Um, and uh, and then let it predict the next note and feed that in as input. So yeah. like it, you, the, the, the model, think of it as like sort of eating its own tail. The model is, is generating the next note and then believing what it generated and feeding it in as input. Like, like, okay, so that gives you some interesting, if the model's able to handle long time scale structure, it will sort of show up in these compositions mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. it's seeing what it wrote and it's trying to remember it and it's doing the right thing. It's also hopelessly like far from what the composition process is like. Yeah. Right. It's almost like saying even the writing process, like nobody writes like, okay, I'm going to start with word. I'm not going to think at all about what I'm trying to say. I'm right. just going to, I just happen to generate the word. Hello. Okay. That's a good word. What comes next? Probably world. <laughs> right. Exclamation it's, point. It's like writing, writing, you know, writing books by <laughs> using autocomplete, right? Yes. You know? But what we're doing, <laughs> actually, that's what we're doing is we're writing songs with auto, with autocomplete. It's just maybe a better autocomplete, right? <laughs> right. Like that's what we've written so far. And, you know, obviously the direction to go in is in, you know, allowing for multiple passes mm -hmm. over over the piece and allowing for um, moving up and down this kind of hierarchy. I think there's something really, really nice about following through the thought experiment. Okay, you, you make some chords <clears throat> and then from those chords, you, you harmonize them and mm -hmm. then you try to write a melody like that's sort of a one directional, you know, high level structure down to more fine grain structure. But then, of course, you really want to allow up. Oh, I got that chord wrong. Let's right. move back up. Let's change that chord. Let's reharmonize. Um, you know, the, the noodly jazz improvisations that I do and the pop songs that I write are like basically that kind of, you know, these multi-pass models. And so, um, you know, I hope we can get there. It's definitely not a left to right one pass process. What are the huge elements in music that makes it like dynamic and makes it emotional and or makes it... Uh incredible is is the element of surprise is the element of listening to something and and having it fly out of the song at you and sort of hit you in the face how do you how do, how does one create that or even think about creating a system that would be able to work in surprise so i think surprise is is, is crucial and probably it's like it's one of the two most interesting things at a sort of a theoretical level that that you could work with in terms of art and music and it's, certainly it's not just music um you know in in, in music theory it's usually called expectancy or expectation mm. And you know the basic idea is that the the composer or the musician is pulling you along, and they're 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 going in different directions at different times. And there's actually probably two really distinct kinds of surprise in music. I, I just love this um, this idea. Um, the first one would be um, something that Bach might do, mm -hmm. and is starting with one premise, so like right. making a really clear statement, yeah, and then changing directions, right, right, right. And then the premise the is actually over here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe in the, you know, the 19th century, you see something new happening, which is composers like Brahms, and in fact, lots of hip hop artists, starting with an unclear premise. Mm. So it's not that they started with something super clear and then changed directions. Mm -hmm. Like in, in Brahms, it'll be like, things get started slowly, 
and there's this hint that this might be in 3-4, a right. triple meter, and yeah. the no weight is in a 4-4, four, four, and you're not sure what key it is, and right. you're doing lots of like movements around two or three keys, and so you're not even, like, your brain is kind of struggling just to understand what's happening at all, and then as, as if the mist clears, you're, yeah. you're getting that. And in hip-hop, it's very, like, I s collect examples of um, a misdirection, rhythmic misdirection, like oh, it's been cool. happening all over the place, but you may notice, you know, something will happen with a rhythm, and some sense of a downbeat gets established. Mm -hmm. And then when the singer or, or the speaker, the rapper comes in, they actually show you that that was an offbeat and you're, you're shifted, you're pulled back and forth, and false endings and all of these things. This is, this is all, I think, having fun with, with unclear definition of where we are and then sort of solidifying it one direction or another. Okay, so um, those are sort of, you know, theoretically what's interesting about surprise. How do we get it? I think right. that's even more interesting. Um, I think in all, in the, so in one sense, this is a deep problem. This is core to music and art, and so we don't know how to solve it, and we'll throw up our hands. But I like to put on an engineer's hat from time to time and say, well, we can probably hack something, hack our way around it. And I think one way to hack around the surprise issue is to always try to have multiple threads of meaning. Mm. Um, some things get easier when you make them more complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think... So for, imagine that what you have are lyrics. Or, uh, imagine you have lyrics and a video. Imagine you have lyrics and video and audio. Mm -hmm. That seems like, oh, well, solve one of them first and then try to solve all three together. But as soon as you have these multiple things happening in parallel, mm -hmm. you can play them against one another. Yeah. Right? And I actually have, I have a great example of this. Um, like I think I believe I found the simple <laughs> the simplest example I'm laughing as I'm thinking about this by the way I have the simplest example of surprise not done by me com computational surprise and it was done by a woman named Chloe Kitten and she wrote a paper describing how to detect that's what she said moments and I <laughs> You have to leave this in, but I hesitate to say, like, it's kind of like frat boy humor. I don't really no. like that's what she said. No, but, like, I want to be clear that I think, you know. It's genius. It's a moment It's a moment of pause, right? Yeah, because exactly. those usually occur when a statement is said, and then someone sort of brings in the non sequitur that makes you reevaluate the statement Ex exactly in a new right. light. Yeah. So, yeah, and, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, unintended, you know, sexual innuendo or something like that. So what she did was she, she, she wrote a, a language model based detector that would go off with a bot and put hashtag that's what she said on your Twitter feed. <laughs> you know? So that's it was fantastic. funny. Right? I think it's funny. Nice. And, and it's okay, so fine. But what's brilliant about this in my mind is that the way she solved this problem is she, she generated not one but two language models. Mm. And by language model, I mean the details are in the paper. I'm going to really gloss over them. But a probabilistic model where you give it a sentence mm -hmm. and it comes back to you and says, what's the probability that that sentence is a real sentence from your language? Yeah. You know, English. Yeah. And the kind of English we would speak in Twitter. Right. <clears throat> and so she trained one language model with text from probably the New York Times or one of these big kind of normal text yeah. databases. Yeah. yeah. And then she can throw her, her tweet at it and it'll come back and say, you know, 0.73%, that's, that's a legit sentence. That's English that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Can you guess what the second um, language model was that she trained? Um... Um, Come on, you IMDb can do it. IMDb databases is, for frat boy movies. <coughs> Close. Um, yeah. um, uh, uh, Erotic fiction. Oh God, of course, <laughs> Isn't of great? course, that's perfect. So, so, like, basically, I hope, I hope, in the minds of your of the listeners and in your mind, it's just like the answer just tumbles out. Oh, of course, I get yeah, it. Yes, but let's make sure there's a detail that you might have missed. So, what's the actual? What's the actual trigger for, for, for triggering of that's what she said? You have the sentence. We throw it at both models. Mm -hmm. So what needs to happen? 
It what needs if, to find the, the middle of the Venn diagram that fits, like, this is an English sentence that makes sense, and it's probably about sex in some kind of a way. Kind of, kind of. Actually, if, if it's probable in both models, mm-hmm. you don't actually want to trigger on that. Ah. Because even in erotic fiction, ah. sentences like, those shoes are green, right. are going to happen. Right, right. yeah, yeah. Right. Yes. So what you need are these weird sentences that are, for reasons that we won't talk about on the radio, <laughs> More probable in erotic fiction than Then they in, would be yeah, in the New York yeah. Times. And th- the cool thing about that is, like, I, th- I think if, if you gave as like a homework assignment, I don't know what university would give this homework assignment <laughs> to a bunch of grad students and say, you know, f- write a Twitter bot that, that detects that's what right. she said moments. You could imagine like running off in just the most wild, overthought, arcane yeah. directions, right? Yeah. And I don't think you can do this easily with, with just one model. Right. It's the idea of having two. You right. Have, you have two spaces of meaning. You have two ideas of what the world is. And what you're doing is you're playing one against the other. And I think if we go back to, to music or art generation, it's this idea of saying, you know, I'm not going to break all the rules at once. Right. Good surprise, I think. Or, I mean, there's always bad surprise. We're on the top of a pretty tall building here and it could fall over. And that would be surprising <laughs> to me. Right. Yeah. It's bad. <laughs> um, no, but like the idea is like, you know, we're not going to break all the rules at once right. in, 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 in painting. Maybe what we're going to do is work with a different material or maybe we're going to, God, I just already feel lost when I start talking about painting, but you know, <laughs> you might still paint dogs, right. but you know, they right. might still have four legs, but <laughs> right. we're going to give them, you right. know, different fur. I don't know. Right. Um, and in music, this is happening all the time. Um, some of the music that we think is the most revolutionary, um, I'm thinking of like my childhood and punk music. Yeah. It's still four, the same three chords. Right. 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 Like, like these people were like moving direct, mo- moving music in a completely new direction, but they were doing it with one, four, five progressions. Right, right? totally. Um, I can think of like, okay, there are the Frank Zappas of this world that actually can manage to like break nine rules at once, right. and you still come out on the other side not too wounded from listening to right, it. Right, totally. But, but there's only rare. one Frank Zappa, right, and punk true. is a whole, <laughs> a whole right, genre, right. right? So I love this idea of saying, you know, if if the medium provides you multiple channels, right? Yeah. Multiple. I don't even know what the right word is. Multiple modes, multiple channels of meaning. Um, then, then you can always play one against the other. You to cl- need to to cl- sort of a clarification. Yeah, which yeah. is why I think it may be easier to be working across modalities to say, hey, I'm going to work with text yeah. and, and video and audio all at once yeah. because then it gives you more kind of levers to pull in terms of, of like kind of doing the normal thing in one, in, you know, one or two of these areas and yeah. then like doing something surprising. Right. In the third. Do you think this would be an interesting um, area for exploring adversarial models? If, you're, if you're, the question that you're trying to answer is like, it's like <coughs> this and it's sort of not like this. Let's flip that on its head with mm-hmm. adversarial models. One way to look at this is w- if we could train an extremely good adversarial model mm-hmm. for art generation, mm-hmm. I claim that that model would have learned a whole lot about how these different these different sort of channels of meaning or modes of meaning fit together, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, the adversary might say something like, uh-uh, that's not a very good punk song. Right. And the gradient that flows back is, oh, I, I made use too many fan, funny chords. I should have stayed with one, four, five. Right, right. right. Um, I think, I mean, the adversarial issue is like, I think one of the other big ideas, which is the way I put it is, you know, everyone needs a critic. Right, right. right. An editor. I think the adversary is just a special case of, of a critic where this adversary happens to be I don't know how much you know about adversarial learning or your listeners, but it's actually not an adversary. Mm-hmm. It's your friend mm-hmm. and it's your, your, your counterfeit friend, your counterfeiting right. friend. Like, Hey, I'm trying to counterfeit something. Here's my first try. And this so-called adversary is like, no, 
that's not real. Right. For a real adversary, that's all it would say. It also right. says, oh, here's some hints on how to do better. Right, so it's exactly. like really a pretty this is nice, what it, this is what it should be pretty more nice like adversary, yeah, right? right. Um, but I think more generally having that critic um, can extend to in the reinforcement in reinforcement learning you have this idea of reward mm -hmm. so the simplest thing you might think of is learning to play backgammon and so you know you're making these moves and you you move yourself in a poor direction you lose the game and you get back negative reward um, I think we can talk about you know having interesting and new models of reward that look like critics mm -hmm. that might start as critics that we've used music knowledge to code mm -hmm. you know, say so we're going to just put in as much sort of prior knowledge as we can into that critic and then using reinforcement learning train up a model that can at least make that critic happy and then and this is where i think this is where i think the field would actually explode in a really wonderful way if we can get you know let's say we get like 50 music generators or whatever, poetry generators, nobody really reads poetry. So, mm. you know, we feel like hundreds of people reading the poetry. I'm sorry, I like poetry. Tens um, of people <laughs> exactly reading poetry. Right. There are dozens of us. <laughs> um, um, and if you can get this generated music, from my example, out to listeners and to other musicians, right? I, I can't stress this enough. If we can get enough signal and use it in a reinforcement learning framework to mm -hmm. improve, that's that's game changing, right? right? Yeah. That's, that's this understanding, you know, if this becomes a, a music recommendation problem, which right. is something I worked on for a long time. And now, you know, you're going to look at what your users actually listen to and propagate that back to your models as a reward signal. And, you know, you don't have to do this over the span of like 20 milliseconds. You can like improve something every week and get a little bit better. Right. But I think that provides us with a very enticing way to kind of move up the quality, mm. move up the sort of this really hard hill to climb of like getting better and better. Like, you know, like the best we can hope to do, I think, is we're not going to we're not talking about Picasso or the Beatles here. We're talking about like generating stuff that's maybe as fun as five minutes of Reddit right? <laughs> like that. Like but think of how cool that is already. Yeah. Like if, like if you can use machine learning to generate stuff that's as fun as reading Reddit for five minutes or. Um, you know, whatever your other favorite time waster is, I think we can do, like we can actually provide more meaningful content and like a much more enriching experience by having personalized generated content. Yeah. And you know, that that's there for you every day. And if it's really there for you every day, then we've changed the world. Even if it's like, I mean, Reddit changed the world. Right. Know, right? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. One of the things that I think about a lot of, um, when, that is sort of wrapped up in experiencing music is the performative aspect of it. Um, where do you think that that fits in at all in, in generative music? Uh, music performance has to, right? Um, there's, there's a, uh, a real puzzle in terms of, all right, let me, let me back up. So music performance, we're, we're working, let me back up one more time cause it's so important. So let's get this right. Um, so you're asking about the importance of music performance in generative music. And I think if I had to assign percentages, probably at least in the last 40 years, the performance aspect is, was well over the 50% line and mm. the scoring aspect is much less, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a real challenge to understand how to get, you know, computational models to perform adequately. There's, there's been some great people working in this area. I think uh, Gil Weinberg from Georgia Tech has done a really great job of getting his um, marimba playing robots to be able to perform. Mm -hmm. And I think he's focused on a lot of really important aspects of this. One is, you know, musicians look around and they, they, they're, they're in the moment playing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and 
I think we as viewers or listeners, I think we underestimate the importance of that. I did, I, I used to torture people by, I used to have this really cool reproducing grand piano when I was at University oh, of Montreal. Awesome. And a, a Bösendorfer big monster of a piano. That's and so cool. you know, I bring a pianist in and have them record a piece and then take the score and you know, you can play their performance back. Right. They're not sitting there, right? right? But then you're comparing apples to apples if you have a computer play the piano. So you had a per person play the piano and you have a computer play the piano and you play the same score mm -hmm. and it's the same notes. Mm -hmm. Like it's the same notes. Right. Okay? Right. All that's different is the performer is, you know, playing notes a little earlier, a right. little later, a little louder, a little softer. This factor out pedaling, but pedaling could be there too. Right. And like from an, from an information perspective, right, there's not an immense amount of information provided it, like the MIDI file that stores the performance is about the same size. Yeah. Things are just happening later or earlier. But the difference in how these pieces sound is is not like, oh, the, the human performance is whatever, 5% more listenable. It's right. just like night and day. Right, yeah. You know, it's like, right. I, can't, <laughs> right. I can't listen to this computer playing this piece of right. music. Yeah, it's right. so bad, I right. can't stand it. Yeah. And like that, you know, college level, decent conservatory pianist just right. moved me, right? right. Now these are, these are pieces of music, these are like etudes and things like that that are written for the performance you right. know, to be performed, yeah. but still, there's something there. And like, oh, so that's one thing. So A, it's hard, B, it matters. And C, it seems to be about the 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 musician interacting with the environment mm -hmm. dynamically and mm -hmm. actually changing what they're doing based upon what they're hearing. They're really closing the perceptual feedback loop. And part of that feedback if you're playing in a group is is understanding where the other musicians are. Right. So it's a long winded way of saying it matters. Uh, done work on it in the past. And um, in terms of magenta, we are we're doing something that I, I hope is the right first step, sort of throwing up our hands and saying, I don't really know how to solve this. Yeah. But we're working on building really robust, great, real-time tools. Mm. Like a win for me is that you can train your, your, your Magenta generation model and that you have a really solid you know, Ableton Live plug-in that mm -hmm. allows you to work with it right away. And mm. It's just there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At least by doing that, we provide ourselves the ability to have you know, even bad, broken models able to perform with others. Mm. And then that opens up the loop for us to understand what they're doing right and doing wrong. So that's a kind of a tool building approach to things. We're going to sort of build some tools and then see where to go from there. Um, because I don't, I don't really know how to solve that problem. Doug Eck of the Magenta Project at Google. I'm just fascinated by these questions of creativity and machine learning. It's, it's such really cool stuff. Yeah, really fun. Definitely. Well, that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. <laughs>